that, that's very sly. Um, and, then, and then with the little marks, it looks like I shouldn't read, like you've edited out those lines, you know. Um, <laughs> how can I not read facts about the moon for Carlene? Um, first of all, I want to say thank you to everyone, you know, um, Jody, um, everyone I've met here. It's just been a delightful time, and I look forward to more delight in the future. Um, but also, thank you so much to the artists that presented last night. I was completely enthralled, inspired, and I just feel like I'm surrounded by such talent and such seriousness, and yet such lightness and humor. Everybody's just filled with, you know, good humor. And um, I feel like I, I was walking into this place, and I heard two people are just casually walking by, and one of them says, well, but don't you think that Goya is, you know, better? And he's like, well, you know, there's also, oh, you know, Matisse, and they're just going, you know, having this little conversation. I'm like, these are my people. Oh, my God, I've found them. And, um, you know, so we're very, we're, we're in very rare air to being together here, and it's a pleasure, but also a um, an honor to be with all of you. So... <coughs> this is um, from my book, Facts About the Moon. Uh, my new and selected is coming out um, soon, and this poem is in the new and selected poems as well as the um, title you know, of, of one of my books. <coughs> it's called Facts About the Moon, and all these facts are true facts, which you yourself can find out about if you watch the Discovery Channel. Facts about the moon. The moon is backing away from us an inch and a half each year. That means if you're like me and were born around 50 years ago, the moon was a full six feet closer to the earth. What's a person supposed to do? I feel the gray cloud of consternation travel across my face. I begin thinking about the moon lit past how if you go back far enough, you can imagine the breathtaking hugeness of the moon. Prehistoric solar eclipses, when the moon covered the sun so completely, there was no corona, only a darkness we had no word for. And future eclipses will look like this, the moon, a small black pupil in the eye of the sun. But these are bald facts. What bothers me most is that someday the moon will spiral right out of orbit and all land-based life will die. The moon keeps the oceans from swallowing the shores, keeps the electromagnetic fields in check at the polar ends of the earth. And please don't tell me what I already know, that it won't happen for a long time. I don't care. I'm afraid of what will happen to the moon. Forget us. We don't deserve the moon. Maybe we once did, but not now, after all we've done. These nights, I harbor a secret pity for the moon, rolling around alone in space without her milky planet, her only love, a mother who's lost a child, a bad child, a greedy child, or maybe a grown boy who's murdered and raped. A mother can't help it. She loves that boy anyway. 
and in spite of herself, she misses him. And if you sit beside her on the padded hospital bench outside the door to his room, you can't not take her hand, listen to her while she weeps, telling you how sweet he was, how blue his eyes. And you know she's only romanticizing, that she's conveniently forgotten the bruises and booze, the stolen car, the day he ripped the phones from the walls. And you want to slap her back to sanity, remind her of the truth. He was a leech, a fuck-up, a little shit. And you almost do, until she lifts her pale, puffy face, her eyes two craters, and then you can't help it either. You know love when you see it. You can feel its lunar strength, its brutal pull. <coughs> so that's not a very fun way to start reading, but <coughs> nevertheless. So I'm also going to read from... Um, this uh, new and selected, and um, and I know I'm going to read um, three new, very new poems, but <coughs> that I'm going to end with. But for right now, I'm going to read some some newer poems that are a little more lighthearted. I hope. Do you guys feel like laughing? Okay. Well, if you do, this is the first one. If it weren't for bad ideas. I'd have no ideas at all. <coughs> a bad idea is like a road we go down at dusk, passing each lit gas station thinking it won't be the last, as if home could be anywhere behind us, any grief we don't need, like the chipped knife in the glove box, the month of December with its cold stars, its end of the world trees. We forget to pack a jacket, down or tweed, no dinner parties, no search parties, just you and your burning, your big because, a boom beneath that could be a bald tire giving up, the resonant sound in your brain saying, keep going, ride on the rims. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> this one is made up completely of quotes from two very famous Americans. I mean, uh, well, no, one famous American and um, Ho Chi Minh. And uh, it's believed that Ho Chi Minh worked at the Carlton Hotel from 1913 and 19 to 1917, where he may have encountered the American actress Mae West. So does everybody know who Mae West is? Ho Chi Minh, you know. Okay, so this is called East Meets West. On a summer evening, they join forces, May in her gown of tears, Ho Chi Minh in his kitchen apron stained with duck blood and grease. She poses before him saying, a hard man is good to find. And he replies, I move with all the dignity of an ancient government official. She says, a man's kiss is his signature. He says, when the prison doors are opened, the real dragon will fly out. This is when he slides his tongue in her mouth, and they collapse on the seal tile floor like knives, eyes glazed as the bottoms of copper pots. 
May's breasts tumble from her dress, and he says, by reading them again and again, finally I was able to grasp the essential part. She touches his thigh and says, I speak two languages, body and English. I've been things and seen places. The chandelier at the Carlton is still lighting up their room in the sky. Tea leaves speaking from the bottoms of their cups. He says, love other human beings as you would love yourself. She says, I never loved another person the way I loved myself. So if you've never written a poem before, this is one way you could do it. Right? Just take a bunch of quotes from two unlikely people, make it a poem. And this is called Timing. Ah, timing. Woody Allen says, it's everything. I say, it's nothing. Can't touch it, wear it, hold it up between your fingers and shake it like a napkin. Timing is what you have when you don't have anything else. A facility with the wine list. A joke that hits the bullseye in the spongy marrow of a funny bone. Or death. That takes timing, too. To elude, you must bend to pick up the fork you nervously, clumsily dropped, so the bullet that whizzed through the wall from the shop next door, where a man of few words was holding up a terrified clerk, lost his balance for a moment, and the gun went off. The bullet marked to end the next thought in your roundly specific head, sailing straight through the window, shattering the harmless glass, nicking the letter D on the marquee across the street, a movie you meant to see after dinner with a woman who could become your wife, but who now looks at you as if you are a wanted man, a man with a foreseeable future, though not in the way you had hoped." I mean, I didn't say they were hilariously funny, but... Um, <coughs> and this one is for my husband, um, who some of you know. And um, he's quite a wonderful man, and he's a poet as well. And um, my dream had uh, always been to go to Paris, because I'm French. Why shouldn't I go to Paris? And <coughs> he one year got a Guggenheim grant for his poetry, and um, he told me that he wanted to take me to Paris with the grant. And um, I said, honey, that is possibly the kindest, most wonderful thing anybody in my life has ever said to me. I said, but this is your grant, and you shouldn't do my dream with your grant. You need to find your dream with your grant. So, you know, you should, you should do what you want to do with it. And he said, well, my dream is to take you to Paris. And that's why I married him. So we never really had a honeymoon, and so this poem is for him, and it's called Honeymoon. And I guess the other thing I could tell you about it is that we do exercises. I don't know if you do exercises if you're a photographer or a painter or a sculptor or a dancer or whatever, but in poetry, our medium is words, is language. And so my husband and I will make up lists of words and phrases and objects or whatever and give them to each other and say, okay, make a poem out of these. 
right? It's like giving someone a paint box and saying, paint a picture with these colors, right? And um, <coughs> I generally think up maybe 10 words and a phrase and maybe a season or something. My husband loves to uh, be sadistic. And he makes up like 20 words and three phrases and four places in the world. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And of course, it's always a challenge. It's like he's throwing down the gauntlet. And there's no way I'm not going to get every single word in there. In this particular one, we had had sushi. And so he told me that I needed to use four of the sushi names on the menu in the poem. So, um, and he also told me that I had to use this phrase that the poem ends with. I won't tell you what the phrase is, but you'll recognize it. Um, <coughs> so this is um, called Honeymoon. We didn't have one, unless you count Paris, 20 years later, after we'd almost given up on the idea. We'd imagined one, long nights beneath a warm celestial sky, him growing his beard, me in a silk turquoise robe, floating, billowing on a deserted beach, foraging for whole sand dollars, jellyfish washed up on the shore, their glittering insides visible, still pulsing through flesh made of glass. But it never happened. We had to work through our vacations, refinance the house, find someone to cut down the cedar that threatened to bury us with each storm. We wanted to make up for the wedding, or lack of one, the granite courthouse steps, the small room with the desk, the flimsy document stamped with a cheap gold seal. Even then, we meant to have a party on the deck, cheese and crackers, fruit plates, sparkling grape cider in plastic cups, our friends on the lawn calling you the big kahuna, me, Mrs. Dynamite, me calling you my sweet dragon, you calling me your little red Corvette. <laughs> Instead, time found a way to demand each minute, until one night, after you'd gotten a small windfall in the mail, you turned to me and said, I'm going to take you to Paris. Me, in my ratty robe and floppy slippers. You, in your flannel PJ bottoms and black wife beater, muting the clicker when I said, what? And saying it again. Then we were there in our 60s, standing below the dire Eiffel Tower, its 81 stories of staircases we couldn't possibly climb, its 73,000 tons of puddled iron, you taking my picture for posterity, me kissing you beneath the pathway of arch trees, our voices echoing against the six million skulls embedded in the stone catacombs, me saying, I guess you weren't kidding, you taking my hand in the rain. So I had to get, I guess you weren't kidding in there. But I did. <coughs> so um, <coughs> this is... Um, this is the title poem from my new and selected, and it's five books of poetry. Um, and all the new poems in the book are poems about my mother, who died a few years ago in Provincetown, um, where you and I met, Heather. And, um, and the title poem is called Only As the Day is Long. 
something my mother used to say, that, and I still am not quite sure what it means. Only as the day is long. Soon she will be no more than a passing thought, a pang, a timpani of wind in the chimes, bent spoons hung from the eaves on a first night in a new house on a block where no dog sings. No cat visits a neighbor cat in the middle of the street, winding and rubbing fur against fur, throwing sparks. Her atoms are out there, circling the earth, minus her happiness, minus her grief, only her body's water atoms, her hair and bone and teeth atoms, her fleshy atoms, her boozy atoms, her saltines and cheese and tea, but not her piano concerto atoms, her atoms of laughter and cruelty, her atoms of lies and lilies along the driveway, and her slippers, Lord, her slippers, where are they now? <coughs> and um, I did promise that I would read a poem that I wrote wh while I was here, just yesterday, I think. And um, I found a book in my room by Tom Tomas Solomon, and in the book he had a line, uh, of poetry that read, we are the people, rose and wound. And so I thought I was going to write a political poem, maybe, or, um, I mean, we are the people. But it just turned out to be this odd kind of lyric narrative. And so this is, we are the people, rose and wound. And it, I'm still changing it as I go along, so it's not written in stone yet. We crawled out of the sea, hands like starfish dug into sand, salted rivulets sluicing through our hair, breathing the new air. Later, we wrote sonnets by rosy lamplight, each word a wound on the page. We invented the round clock face, the clock tower, the geared wristwatch, captured cathode and diode, transfigured by digital light, the pupil transfixed by the delicate pixel. We made French bread, naan, the tough-skinned bagel, the repeated miracle of sourdough starter, discovered the power inside water thundering over steep rocks, their heft and jut, Mount Rushmore, Fort Knox. We were unstoppable, unfathomable, stomping through the fallen leaves, making it all up as we trudged along. Songs and jingles, Rice Krispies and carcinogens, synthetic collagen. We dug deep red wounds into the coal-mined earth, brought forth backyard roses only we could see and pick carried them into boxy houses where they opened so wide they fell apart on our kitchen tables, undressed beside our bedside lamps. We wounded the air-conditioned air with our love cries and birth cries, all bare skin and big eyes. We lived our brief, spectacular lives, every one of us a movie star, every death a Marilyn found nude in her bed a James Dean in his spider with its red interior, his neck 
broken, his left foot crushed between the brake and the clutch. So just so you know, I'm also trying to work while I'm here. And these are the three poems I'd like to end with. Um, this one is called Salt. I've been writing um, poems with one-word titles. Salt. Since the beginning, salt. Seawater we climbed out of. What would later fall from our eyes when we saw the yellow bells of Datura. Confusion of moonflowers slung over our shoulders as we roamed the new earth the beaten roads to the mines we pulled it from in wooden carts, crystalline in sun, shipped on the flanks of barges across the blue Mediterranean, the answer to preserving food, tanning hides, bleaching pulp, 14,000 uses for the fine grains we pinch into the pot, how much, how little depends on the tongue. Jewels of salt sewn into the hems of winter coats, strewn on icy streets, the salt and sea stretching through the imperial valley, the nothing of the Colorado desert. Table salt, rock salt, kosher salt, Himalayan pink, Celtic sea, fleur de sel hand harvested from the tidal pools of France. Flake salt, black and red Hawaiian salt, smoked salt, pickling salt, the potato chip, and the lowly pretzel, bread crust, cold cuts, nuts, beads of sweat we lick from our upper lip, rub between our damp, nervous palms, and in the end, poured in rings around the dead to keep insects from feasting on our flesh. <coughs> so I realize that's very similar to the new one that I just wrote. Guess I'm just repeating myself now. Um, <coughs> and then this one is a poem for my sister that, um, and the book is dedicated to my sister, uh, even though the poems, the new poems in it are for my mother, um, but she died recently. And this poem is going to be in the winter uh, issue of Prairie Schooner, edited by Kwame Dawes, who will curate a special issue on the opioid epidemic. So this is called Snow. It wasn't snowing, and then it was, like death, like my sister's texts that just stopped. I'm in the hospital, then a phone call. We did everything we could. Endocarditis, valve leakage, her heart on heroin. She wasn't addicted, and then she was, on and off, for years. Her and her daughter, my niece, living on the streets. Every few weeks, a phone call. We'd need a motel room, food. Once, we ordered them a pizza from the other coast, where we had moved to get away from them, though we couldn't quite quit them, addicted to family, a feeling, a rush of guilt, the wrong address. We never knew where the pizza went. She was a statistic, one of the twelve-fold increase. They must have folded her clothes, dropped them in a bag with her purse, her phone, what little she had left. Though the woman's shelter had no record, though they had other bags she'd filled with nothing more than rags, a wealth of sweatpants, unraveled sweaters, a box of makeup, and a toothless comb. 
coloring book picture her grandchild had scribbled in with magic marker, a parrot in its cage, its folded wings bled through to the other side. I understand how it happened, but it doesn't matter. It was inevitable, unavoidable. If any one of us was going to fall prey, it was her, middle child of too many to count, not enough love to go around. I was in New York. It was snowing. Michael Moore was on stage in front of an American flag when the phone buzzed, went to the stairwell where I was told, alone on the metal steps, she's gone, sobbing, when a voice from a dark doorway asked, are you all right? A guard in his booth. My sister died. He handed me a box of Kleenex and closed the door. It seemed to give me privacy. Back in the cab, I sat between my girlfriends, hip to hip like sisters, an arm around each shoulder. All night, we had been laughing, and then we weren't. They asked me questions, and then they stopped, and we rode on into the snow. Powder, black tar, brown sugar, junk, skag, skunk, dragon, china white, snow. Then the cabbie turned right and eased through a slew of pedestrians, a sea of coats and gloves, wool scarves, faces hidden beneath hats. It was like the whole country was out on night patrol, trudging forward solidly, seriously, like we had to plow our way through it. Keep our heads down. Keep going. And this last poem is inexplicably called Joy. Even when the gods have driven you from your home, your friends, the tree you planted brought down by storm, drought, chainsaw, beetles, even when you've been scrubbed hollow by confusion, loss, Accept joy, those unbidden moments of surcease, the quiet unfolding around your shoulders like a shawl, the warmth that doesn't turn to burning. When the itch has stopped, the cough, the throb, the heart's steady beat resumed, the barn door open to the shade, the horse inside waiting for your touch, apple in your pocket, pocked, riddled, the last to fall, the season done, as you would accept air into your lungs without thinking, not counting each breath, as you accepted the earth the first time you stood up on it and it held you, how it was just there, a solid miracle, gravity, something you would learn about only later and still be amazed. Thank you.